a Podcast One production. Hello and welcome back to Crappy to Happy. I am your host, Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher and author of the Crappy to Happy books. I am so excited to be bringing you brand new episodes of the show. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for all of your positive feedback on previous episodes. And please do give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or the Podcast One Australia app if you enjoy the show. Send me your comments. Hello at castdone.com or send me a DM over on Instagram. I do read and appreciate all of your messages. Now, a lot has changed since I was last in the studio. I'm now coming to you from my home and I'm chatting with my guests by video link because that's what we do in 2020. We're not able to be in the same state, let alone in the same room. Here in Australia and around the world, we've all been affected in different ways by the coronavirus pandemic. And I really think that now more than ever, we are in need of inspiration and real advice about how we can maintain our positivity, boost our emotional resilience, cope with uncertainty and stay optimistic in these challenging times. With that being the case, rather than releasing 10 episodes at a time going forward, we'll be bringing you a brand new episode every fortnight. And I am thrilled to say that we have an incredible lineup of guests who are generously sharing their wisdom with me and with you so that we can all feel a little bit less crappy and more happy. To kick things off, I am bringing you back one of our most popular guests from previous seasons, Churia Pitt. She needs no introduction here in Australia, but if you are one of our many international listeners, Churia was caught in a grass fire while competing in an ultra marathon in 2011. She sustained full thickness burns to 65% of her body, and not only did she beat the odds by surviving and learning to walk again, she went on to compete in two Ironman competitions, including the World Championships in Hawaii. She is now the mother of two beautiful boys. She's written multiple best-selling books, including her latest, Happy and Other Ridiculous Aspirations. She's a humanitarian and she is an all-round fabulous, smart, funny woman. We all want to be her friend. And I could not resist the opportunity to talk to her about what she's learned and experienced about what it makes to be truly happy. Here's Cheria. Tria, thank you so much for coming back on to the Crappy to Happy podcast. You are our first ever repeat guest. Yes. And the last time you came onto the show, obviously listeners loved what you had to say. And it's a crazy time. A lot has happened since the last time I spoke with you. You've had a baby. The whole world has changed. And you've put out this book called Happy and I'm holding it up and Other Ridiculous Aspirations, which is such a perfect time for this book. Um, So I was really keen to get you back in and have a chat about all things happiness. Awesome. Okay. I I think I'm ready for it. So let's just dive straight in. Tria, you wrote this book. Like I said, it is a really great time for this book because we are going through such a challenging time. It's an amazing book too. I have been reading it. But you started writing this book kind of pre-COVID pre-fires, pre-all of the tragedy that we've experienced this year. I'm just curious to know, like, what inspired you to want to write a book about happiness? Well, you see, Cass, I can predict the future. So I knew that this year would be a really hard time for a lot of people. So I knew I just had to get a book out there in time. 
Um, no, the book, I get asked a lot of questions from, um, from people, like through emails and through social media and stuff. And one of the main couple of questions I get is how am I so happy and how, how am I so happy given everything that I've been through? And when I checked in with myself, I kind of realized I was just as happy as I was before the fire, if not happier. And I thought that was really interesting that someone could go through a life-changing, catastrophic experience and come out the other side just as happy as ever. Um, so I started doing some research. I read a lot of really cool papers. Um, Sonia Leibomersky, I'm sure you know of her, Cass, but she was one of the original researchers who determined the happiness pie chart. Um, and there's a quote out there. I'm not sure if you've heard of it not or not, but 50% of our happiness is predetermined by our genes, right? So how, how happy we can actually be is kind of restricted by our genes. Um, then 40%, though, we can influence or we can change by our intentional activities. So things like practicing gratitude, being kind to someone else, savoring the small moments, working towards things that we that are meaningful for us, all of those things you can do to actually make yourself happier. And there's only a really small to 10% that is attributed to our life circumstances. So that means whether you win the lottery or you lose your leg in a car crash, after a couple of years, you'll reach an equilibrium of, of your happiness set point. And you're nodding your head because I know that, you know, you would probably know this. But when I read that paper, I thought it was really fascinating. Oh, it is fascinating. And yeah, the reason I'm nodding my head and I'm smiling is because I was actually going to mention that exact same research that you just mentioned about whether you win the lottery or you come out, you know, paraplegic, that you come back to this set point. And which is clearly like it clearly demonstrates that if we're looking outside of us for our external circumstances to change in order to feel happier, then we're looking in the wrong place. And I was really, I guess, intrigued by what you just said about the fact that you didn't just come back to your happiness kind of baseline set point. You actually feel like you are potentially even happier. What do you put that down to? I think it's because like when I had my accident, I was a lot younger. I was 24 and I was personally always focused on achieving things and doing things and doing really great things. And I never stopped to reflect on the awesome things that I did. I never stopped to think about all of the people in my life that I was grateful for. I never stopped to think about all the incredible opportunities I had and all of the privilege privileges that were bestowed on me as, you know, as a product of growing up in Australia and living in this really awesome country of ours. So I think, you know, a key difference is like these days when I start my mornings, I start them by thinking of three things that I'm genuinely grateful for. And old Tree would have never have done that. She would have been like, well, that's a load of rubbish. Like if I'm grateful, that means I'm not, you know, striving and I'm not achieving and I don't want to do more with my life. So I think it's that I am more conscious of this um, incredible journey that we call life. I am accepting of the fact that part of happiness is that I may not be happy every single day. I may have days where I might be stressed, tired, cranky, disappointed, hurt, and that all of those emotions are perfectly valid and a part of the human experience. And so I think all of those things I've kind of learnt over the past decade, and I think that's what helps me to be happier than I was before the fire. 
So it's been a real shift in perspective, I guess. And it sounds like um, almost a shift in values, would you say? I think so. And like, I think also that comes with age as well. You know, like I'm, I'm 10 years older, I've got kids, the focus is no longer just on me. It's about these two little humans in my life. Uh, yeah, I think it's a whole host of different things. It's things I've learned along the way. It was writing this book that made me understand a lot of this stuff a little bit more and then just getting older and becoming a bit more mature and a, a bit wiser and also giving less fucks as well, which <laughs> is a really, no, it's a really, that's a really cool thing about getting older. No one tells you that when you're young, but like the older I get, um, I seem to be like caring less about what other people think, which I think is really, really awesome. I think it is too. And I think that you have potentially got to that point even quicker than what some people do. Like I think some people get to their 40s and 50s before they realise they can give less fucks. Yeah. Um, so as obviously as a result of your own experience and what you've been through and, as you say, just maturity, then you've perhaps got there. Um, more quickly than other people. I was interested that when, I mean, you start off the book saying, you, you know, who am I to talk about happiness? I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an expert. I think a lot of people would consider you to be uh, very qualified based on what you've been through. The fact that you are a living, breathing example of somebody who has come through a tragedy and still is able to see the positive and make the best of it. Having said that, you did go out and back it all up with research and you interviewed a whole lot of people and really interesting people too. And I'm just curious to know, as you gathered up that information and you did your research and you talked to these people, what was it that you realised you had been doing right uh, without perhaps necessarily even knowing that it was the right thing or that there was the research there to back it up? And I guess also part B, what did you realise that you could be doing that you maybe weren't? Okay, so part A of that question, like I've always known that our relationships are really important. But having said that, you know, it is hard for us to stop what we're doing with ourselves in our own lives and try and prioritise our relationships and try and, you know, do something for our partners or be more present with our kids or drop over our meal to a friend who's, you know, going through cancer or whatever. So even though I knew that relationships were really important, um, they also felt like something that I could get to when I was done with what I was doing right now. And I spoke to Mikey Wiking, he's the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Denmark. Like how cool is it that they even have a Happiness Research Institute? Um, and he really emphasised the importance of relationships, of investing in our relationships. And, you know, he, he had a really good example if you, Cass, if you think about like one of the happiest days of your life, um, can you just tell me a little bit about that for a second? Oh, well, I guess maybe my wedding, my daughter being born, you know. Yeah, being, okay. Yeah. So those events, all of those, there was other people in them. And I found that a really powerful example because our happiest memories in life, the times when we feel the best is when we're with other people. Um, so I found that really uh, interesting and that really made me change how I did things in my life and also really made me reprioritise how I was spending my time. Um, things that I didn't do before reading the book, like I'm not a saint, there's still heaps of stuff that I put in the book that I still I try to do, but some days I don't. Um, and one of the things was making a bed. 
And my partner is a massive advocate for making a bed. And I was always like, that's such a waste of time. You're literally just going to hop back in it at night. Like, why would you even bother? But making your bed is like this keystone habit that we have. And the thinking is like, if you can make your bed, then maybe you can drink two litres of water. And then if you can drink two litres of water, maybe you can go to the gym. And if you can go to the gym, maybe you can eat a healthier dinner. So it's like this real starting point in your day where if you started off right, then hopefully the rest of the day pans out really well. That's I like that. Do you make your bed? Do you make your well, bed, Well, I cast? do. If you call just, you know, pulling the doona up, making the bed, yeah, there's no um, hospital corners or no, anything no, like no, that. No, 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 no. I'm just after progress and not perfection. I just, like, pull the doona back and, like, chuck all the pillows on. It's still – but it, may, it actually makes me feel better, like, seeing that my bed is made – there's a lot to that, I think. I know a lot of people talk about that making the bed yeah. is just being starting the day off right psychologically. And you're right, aren't you? Like it's just those little tiny things, tiny habits that can just kick off a chain of positive behaviour. I'm curious to just go back to what you said about not being happy all the time. I think that's important to cover when we're all talking about happiness. And, you know, I think sometimes we have, there are people who have, a misconception perhaps. Um, could you talk to that a bit about that it is not about being happy all the time? Yeah, totally. Like for sure there's a perception that if you're not happy and excited and enthusiastic that maybe there's something wrong with you, that maybe you're not doing whatever is whatever it is that you're doing, you're not doing it right. So I think there's definitely that perception. I think also feeling bitter, envious, jealous, angry they're not really comfortable feelings so obviously if we could have it our own way we'd love to be happy every day and we'd love to be excited and we'd love to be motivated all the time but life doesn't work like that and I think when we can drop that that bullshit facade that everything's okay and everything's fine and really just accept and acknowledge how we are actually feeling whether that's stressed or annoyed or irritated or disappointed and we just allow ourselves to just sit in that feeling as uncomfortable as it may be, I find in my experience that feeling dissipates, tends to dissipate a lot quicker than if I just lie to myself and say, no, 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 I'm fine. Everything's fine. It's all going to be fine. Yeah. So I think just really acknowledging acknowledging how we're feeling and, and understanding that it, it's actually okay to not feel good all of the time. It's part of being being human. Yeah. And I think just to that point, you know, a lot of when we think that we need to feel good all all of the time, it can often lead to those quick fix kind of behaviours. I guess we go reach for having a glass of wine to take off the stress or comfort eating, and then those things can become problematic in themselves. And I was curious to see that in your book, you actually talk about um, food, right? What we eat. I don't think that's been covered a lot in the happiness books that are out there, that link between what we are consuming and how we're, how we nourish ourselves and the effect that that has on our um, mental health and our psycho- psychological state. Oh, I think it has a massive, mm. massive impact. Like if you're eating shit food and you're not moving your body and you're not sleeping en- enough, you'll feel like shit. You know what I mean? You don't, need a, you don't need a scientist to tell you that. Everyone will know that in themselves. But I think if you are 
taking the time to exercise, whatever exercise you like, whether you like walking, whether you like roller skating, um, eating well and eating good foods that are good for us and trying to get enough sleep at night. When you do those three things, as boring as they sound to do, they don't sound very exciting. Um, But if you try and do those things, you will feel more emotionally resilient. And I think you'll feel like you have more control over your day. And I think you'll be better equipped to deal with the inevitable setbacks that life throws away. So whenever I know whenever I feel stressed or angry or irritated or annoyed, like I'll accept that feeling, I'll acknowledge it, and then I'll try and do things that I know make me feel better um, and better in the long term. So like a glass of wine does make me feel better, but I might not feel better the next day. Um, so I'll try to, I know if I go for a run, I'll come home and I'll feel clear-headed, I'll feel energised, I'll be endorphins pumping through my body and I'll feel like, okay, right, now I can think about this problem that I'm facing or now I can work my way through this challenge. Yeah, healthy coping. Yeah, yeah, but it's like it's the first thing to go out the window, right, whenever we get stressed. Oh, of course. And I think whenever we are feel like we are really stuck in a state of despair or we're feeling really lethargic and like we can't get out of bed to kind of check in with ourselves and just think okay well what's what's one thing I could do that that I know is going to make me feel better maybe I can make myself a really nice omelet this morning maybe I can go and sit on the balcony and get some sun on me and drink my cup of tea um, without my phone in my hand maybe I could text a girlfriend and we can go for a walk together around the block not so much driving for that chiseled six-pack push-ups and chin-ups down the beach in front of everyone, but more just looking to doing those things, those acts of self-care that we know are going to make us feel better about ourselves. Cherie, you spoke to a whole lot of people in this book and got their take on happiness, I guess. Did you find any common threads through all of those? So we're talking about people like um, you talked to Dr. Libby, Zoe Foster-Blake, Mick Fanning, your friend Kate, I wanted to get to her who went through the fire with you. Was there anything that was common amongst all of those in terms of their take on happiness? I think all of them understood in some way the fragility of life. So they were all really aware that, you know, our time on earth is not a given and it's something that we shouldn't take for granted. And all of them um, in various forms were all really grateful for the life that they had. And I found that really interesting because you've got people, I interviewed people like, you know, Zoe Foster Blake, who is a, you know, has launched her own beauty brand. And then we've got Mick Fanning, who's three times world surfer. But then we've got people like Kate Sanderson, the other woman who was with me in the fire, um, Lee Sales, the anchor of the 730 report, and then Eddie Jacku, the Holocaust survivor. Um, he wrote, he's, he's, he's actually written a recent book as well called The Happiest Man on Earth, which is a really, really incredible read. Um, so they all had a sense of that life is fragile and it's not a given, but also a sense of gratitude for the life that they had, which I thought was really uh, interesting. And one thing that I picked up too is, and I haven't finished reading the whole book, but just from the few that I did read, that they all seem to have like just some sense of purpose or some sense of meaning. And we often talk about that, like having a sense of meaning in life, like a meaningful goals. 
But but then what do you say to people who get hung up on, well, I don't know what my purpose is? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we really just need to take the pressure off ourselves because, like, if you ask me what my purpose is, I'd be like, oh, fuck, I, actually, I don't know. Like, I like what I do for work. I love writing. I like speaking to people like you. I like creating good content that people like. But, yeah, I don't know if... If someone said to me, like, what's my life purpose, I'd kind of get bogged down in that, the heavy weight of that question. So rather than, you know, asking yourself what your purpose is, I reckon just go with things like, well, what do you like to do? What are you, what are you interested in? What are you more curious about? What do you want to learn more about? And just go from there because I think people who do live meaningful lives or, or lives full of purpose just follow areas of interest and areas of passion like I'm sure you do Cass and it it all just builds from there yeah exactly yeah and I love I think I think it's Liz Gilbert who who first came out maybe a few years ago talking about just follow your curiosity yeah and I think that's such sound advice um because people do feel that pressure to follow your passion, yeah. follow your purpose, and they go, well, I don't know what that is. And, like, I, I always find it strange, like, does that mean we only have one purpose mm. in life? Like, I have to find just one and name it and then I just have to embody that and be that for the rest of my life? Like, what if I want to change my mind? Or what if I do that one thing for 10 years and then I decide I don't want to do it anymore? Like, does that mean I can't change it? So I think, yeah, rather than asking ourselves our purpose – and all of the gravity that comes with answering that question, just again, like Liz Gilbert says, follow whatever you're curious in or follow whatever you want to learn more about or whatever you're interested in. It is really important, and I know you cover this as well in the book too, to have meaningful goals. And you said before, when you were young, you're pursuing uh, achievement, ambition and career and all of that. Would you say that your part of what has shifted for you is the kind of goals that you that are meaningful to you? I think I'm still a really ambitious and driven person. I still really love setting big goals for myself and achieving those goals. But I think what I do now is I'm grateful I'm, I'm grateful for for every step I take on that journey towards that goal, whereas before I would have been like, well, hurry up, you haven't achieved it yet. Like what's wrong with you? Why haven't you achieved it yet? So I was probably just harsher, harsher with myself. And so now after my experience, I'm a lot more compassionate with myself. I am more grateful for every step I take towards the goals. But I still think I'm just as driven and ambitious as I was before the fire. On the flip side, something else that's really fundamental or important for our happiness is this idea of just having fun and play. And I think that's really, we don't talk about that a lot. And I think it's, it's, it's underrated. People think, well, in our world that we're supposed to be productive and busy all of the time. So let's talk about that then, the importance of actually just having fun. Yeah. And like, I think especially when you are a like a mom, it's really hard to prioritise yourself and then like prioritise yourself to go and have fun. It seems like a really flippant waste of time and, you know, there's all of these articles on the internet, how to get more into your day, how to be more productive, how to triple your productivity, all of these hacks that you can use to make yourself more productive. And so when you think about like taking an hour to 
lie in the sun and read a book or taking an hour to go down for a swim or for a surf. Um, it feels kind of wasteful with your time. But I look at it in the sense as I know in myself that if I've taken some time for me to do something for myself, something that I find fun, whether that's going for a surf, going for a run, catching up with girlfriends for lunch, um, getting a massage, sitting in the sun, bouncing with my kids on the trampoline, when I take time to do that sort of stuff, I feel better. I feel happier and I feel more energised. And I think in our world, like there's so much shit out there that makes us feel bad about ourselves already. So I think if we really just try and take that time for ourselves to have fun, we'll actually enjoy, enjoy our day a lot more and we'll enjoy our lives a lot more. And the thing about taking a little bit of time out for fun as well is it actually makes you more productive because you've had that, you've had that me time. You're not sitting down at your desk resenting the work that you're doing. You're not with your family feeling like you haven't gotten a break from them. Um, I think it really does make you more present and enjoy your life a lot more. But you know what? Even, even when I know that, and you're probably the same, like even when we know that, it it's still so easy to get pulled into the, but I've got more work to do. I've just got to get this other thing done. We've got to really consciously pull ourselves out of that busy mode, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've got the work I do, I find it fun. And I find it interesting. Well, see, that's what I mean. So on a Saturday night, uh, my family will be in bed and I'll pull out my laptop and I'll have a glass of wine and I'll sit down and I'll write. And part of me will feel like a loser because it's a Saturday night. Like, shouldn't I be out, like, seeing people and, like, doing something fun? But then you've got to remind yourself that your idea of fun is going to be different from someone else's idea of fun. And my idea of fun is genuinely with my computer, with a glass of wine, writing. Like I really love that stuff. And I think I I guess it's great that I feel like my work and what I do for work, I find parts of it fun. Um, but Liz Gilbert said something else really interesting. She said all work involves some kind of uh, shit sandwich, as in some kind of – there's some aspect of your work that you don't enjoy – and I'm sure your job's the same, Cass. My job's the same as well. So, so some aspects I really enjoy, find really fun. Other aspects are just like eating a shit sandwich. Yeah, th- that's good advice too. Like Eat shit sandwiches. <laughs> no, we're not going to be having fun all of the time. I was also interested to talk with you about like when we experience a tragedy such as you have, or a trauma, and bearing in mind what the world is going through at the moment and people are going through a really tough time, there are some people who come out of a traumatic experience and are just completely destroyed by it, and there are some people who come out of a traumatic experience and who actually experience what we call post-traumatic growth. Like they, they not only survive but they really thrive. I think you could be described as one of those people. And I'm curious to know what came out of your talking to people and your research about what is it that makes the difference, do you think? Why is it that some people do fare so much better than others? I think it's a combination of reasons, like, for example, having strong support around you. So I was lucky in a sense because I had um, my friends and family and the medical team that I got given were all brilliant. They really rallied around me. So I had that support. I think you... 
Well, I think it's very rare to get through anything, particularly some kind of traumatic event, if you don't have people in your corner, people supporting you. So I think that definitely was one thing. I think for me, I saw a psychologist every week for about two years. I think she was instrumental in my recovery. Um, I think mental health has really been destigmatized somewhat, but I still think we've got a long way to go. And I think, you know, if our car needs fixing, we take it to a mechanic. If we want to get our eyebrows waxed, we go to a beautician. And I think if we're dealing with something, if we're dealing with whether it's we've got some kind of emotional turmoil or we've been through some kind of trauma, like to go and see someone, go and see, seek professional help, see a counsellor, see a psychologist. There's some amazing support services out there like Beyond Blue and Lifeline. And there's a whole chapter in this book on, on getting through hard times, but there was some really interesting research done by a guy named, um, his surname was Penny Baker. He had this idea that if you start writing down your thoughts and feelings about what happened to you, um, you just do it for 15 minutes, I think over the course of a week, um, that will help you feel better and that will help you try and find the reasoning or the rationale for what, what you went through. And I can't remember what he called that technique, but the book was called Expressive Writing. So I was also doing that, even though at the time I didn't realise that that was an actual technique. I was just writing because I like writing. I was just writing down my thoughts and feelings, trying to process my experience and what happened to me. So I think that as well, that really helped me. That Penny Baker uh, approach, the Penny Baker protocol, I've heard it called, I've only come across that research in the last little while, couple of years, say myself. And it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Yeah. It's cool, isn't it? Yeah. So for four days, it's like for four days, for 20 minutes. And if you just write your thoughts and feelings about this, whether it's a trauma or something you're struggling with, an emotional upheaval. And I actually started getting some of my clients to do that. And they do, they say like, there is a shift. There is a distinct shift. And then down the track, like the research bears it out that, you know, seven or eight months later, people are in a whole different place emotionally and their perspective has shifted and they can make meaning of the um, event just from doing four days. And it's so like manageable for people. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Like like anyone can sit down and just you know, right. And it doesn't have to be something that's going to win a Pulitzer Prize. It doesn't need to make sense grammatically. It can have spelling mistakes. I think the main idea is like, so often we just get stuck in our heads. We've got all of this shit just swirling around and it's really hard for us to make sense of that noise in our heads. And I think it's so beneficial for us to get it out of our heads onto paper. I think that really helps us think about it a lot more clearly. But oh yeah, I didn't I didn't know about this research until I started writing this book and I found it fascinating. Yeah. And it's so cool that you've been using it with your clients and you've noticed that they've, you know, had an improvement. That's amazing. Last year, I started running retreats, two of these four days retreats, and I would give people out a journal and say, now, before we start, if you want to use this four days to do a four day, you know, journaling exercise, and people actually would take that up and, and use that time to do that. It's just so effective. By the same token, so is seeing a psychologist like you who can recommend yes. that you try this, you know, penny baker technique or, you know, um, 
there's all sorts of strategies and all sort of sorts of tips and tools that a psychologist can can share with you and help you deal with whatever you're going through. And I think that's a really that's another point that you make in the book. Like not every one of these ideas or these techniques is going to stick for you or resonate with you, but it is really about trying different approaches and then checking in with yourself about how does does this have a positive effect? Does this make a difference? There are so many strategies in the book and like this is not the intention that someone goes, right, okay, I'm going to l- write a list of these hundreds of strategies and I'm going to do all of them every single day. That That's not the intention. I guess the intention was just to read it. If you read something and you go, yeah, nah, that, that sounds doesn't sound like me, that's fine. You know, like maybe only one or two things will resonate with you, but if they implement just a couple of them and it helps them feel better about themselves, feel like they have more control over their life and, dare I say, it makes them happier, then I'll be happy with that. Sharia, just getting back quickly to your friend Kate. Yes. Who was... was Love Kate. Right. So Kate was in the fire. I had not heard about Kate before reading about her in your book. Uh, She sustained injuries as well. I was so fascinated to read that she has gone on to become a volunteer firefighter. I know, she's crazy. She's crazy. But I also know, even though you are not fighting fires, you have done the firewalk experience on a Tony Robbins weekend. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, yes, yes, I did that. (laughs) I was just curious to know, do you think there is something significant about, for you and Kate in your own different ways, facing down that fear, like facing the fire, you know, facing down the thing that caused you so much trauma as a key aspect of your healing or, you know, moving on from that? I don't know. I don't know because I remember when I did I did the Lake Argyle swim, which is this big swim in the Kimberleys with, with Kate and the other people that were in the gorge with us and got injured at the same time. And 60 Minutes were with us and everyone from the fire went back to the site of the actual fire, the gorge where we were burnt, except for me. I didn't go back there. And it wasn't like I was afraid, but I, I just felt for me I didn't really see the benefit in in revisiting a place that had hurt me. And I talked about it with my partner, Michael, and we just, I don't know, we were just like, yeah, we actually just don't, don't want to go. We couldn't articulate why we didn't want to go, but we just didn't want to go. And so we spent our day like exploring gorges and like, swimming in the water and everything we had a great a great day so I don't know I think maybe for Kate like obviously if she is literally in a firefighter's outfit fighting a fire I'd say um probably it might have been important for her to face her fear of fire but for me I don't think um so much but at that Tony Robbins event that you just mentioned I do remember Distinctly, when I was standing there on the edge of the hot coals, like this internal battle was going on in my head and part of me just felt like maybe doing this, I could go from that event being the biggest tragedy in my life to being one of the biggest triumphs. So I do remember that moment. I don't know if that answers the question, Cass. I think a, a more succinct way would have been like, yeah, kind of, sort of. <laughs> Well, I don't know if a lot of people, obviously you've written about it in your books before, but I, I'm not sure that people really, I mean, you write also about the New South Wales fires that we just experienced last summer. 
and it's only when you write about it that it really hits home, like just the magnitude of what you went through, like, and the just having a fire so close and how that impacts you, for example, differently to how it would impact. It's all terrifying for anybody, but how it impacts you having had the experience that you had. And just even a firewalk, you know, it's a different experience for you than anybody else who might also. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Well, yeah, because people I was with were like, yeah, that was nothing. That was easy. Whereas I was like, like literally terrified. Um, but when the, the fires were happening on the south coast, like there was fires burning to the north of us, to the south of us, to the west of us. When I went out on my balcony, all I could, you know, see was smoke and there was embers falling in our backyards. And obviously I was really stressed, really anxious, really terrified. And I also felt useless because I wasn't rescuing neighbours from neighbouring towns. I wasn't doing any food drops. I wasn't out fighting any fires. I was heavily pregnant. I had um, my toddler at home with me. And that whole time I was just in my head, just focusing on that on that noise, just almost obsessing about how these fires were affecting me personally. And it was only when I shifted that thinking and started thinking, well, how could I give back to my community? How could I do something that would be useful? How could I help other people? What could I be grateful for right now? It was only when I started to think like that and put my focus elsewhere that that fear and that terror and that anxiety just dissipated. And it was really cool. A girlfriend came over and we came up with this idea, spend with them. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Um, Of course. Of course I did. Amazing. Yes. yes. And it was a, just a little social initiative where we would profile businesses on an Instagram page. And then anyone from all over Australia or anyone all over the world could find out about that business, purchase something from that business, um, and then put money back into that local town, boost morale and help fire affected communities all around Australia. And like we started it, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, We created the logo in Canva. And I think within a couple of days, we had like close to 200,000 followers. The campaign took off like wildfire. And I think that experience for me, number one, it it really crystallised, like especially when we are stressed or anxious or fearful, to try and think about others doing something for someone else giving back that's all part of being a kind human which you know all of that stuff helps us to be happy which I write about in the book but when we're stressed and anxious and fearful we are very much focused on ourselves and I think it's it can be really useful for us to try and shift that and think about well what what could we do to help someone else how could we be of service to our community Um, and so for me doing that campaign Look, it helped a lot of businesses and it helped a lot of people all around Australia, but it also really helped me, really helped me manage my emotions whilst living, you know, in the middle of a bushfire crisis. It was amazing to watch. I watched it obviously unfold at the time. This little thing you set up, you put a post up on your personal Instagram, so go and check out this page and it just exploded, which I think, I mean, it's a huge uh, kudos to you and Grace who set it up, but it was also really a reflection of how a lot of us were feeling in terms of just wanting to help. Yeah, totally. But that's like the same with the coronavirus as well, right? Like people might feel useless. And I think if you're feeling useless, like 
Try just doing something for someone else. Try making a meal for one of your neighbours and leaving it at the door. Try um, calling up a girlfriend who you know is also having a really hard time and saying, hey, let's go for a walk. Like the sun's out, we could go for a walk and just get a little bit of, you know, a little bit of sun on our skin. Try, um, you know, I always like to try and do some really good bits of writing or some really good content that I hope people will find valuable and they'll appreciate. So I think especially if you're feeling a bit blah and a bit stuck and useless, just try and do something for someone else. Try and do something kind and then see if that actually makes you feel better because I can guarantee you it it will. As you said, it is in the book and it is proven by research. So I'm also found it really interesting that you had this, you're writing this book about happiness and this book about happiness is due and you can't get it, you, you, like you know that you need to focus on this book about happiness and instead you're going out and creating this uh, initiative to help other people, which ironically is fundamental to happiness. <laughs> like you were just like living it as in real time. Look, I had, to, I had to make sure what I put in the book was verified with personal experience, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to ask you now to come back to the coronavirus. So obviously this has been a really, really tough time. Depending on where you live, it's affected us all differently. You know, clearly the guys, I think even at the time that this podcast goes to air, there's probably people still in lockdown or just coming out of lockdown. Based on what you have learned and and from your own experience, what advice have you got for people to um, who are struggling, who are really struggling and, and finding it tough to find any silver lining in what's been a pretty crap year. Yeah, I would just accept it and acknowledge it. Say, yeah, today's, this year's been shit. And remind yourself that if anyone else was in your situation, they would feel the same. If anyone else was in lockdown for pretty much months on end, they would feel shit. They would feel like crap. So just accept it and acknowledge it. Um, the next thing I would say is a bit of perspective does always help. So whether you're getting that perspective by helping somebody else, like we just talked about Cass, or reading some really good books written by some really awesome people, Eddie Jacku, I mentioned him earlier, he wrote The Happiest Man on Earth. Um, he's a Holocaust survivor. I found that book to be extraordinary. They can read one of my books. They can watch really cool movies, inspirational movies like The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, The Intouchables. Um, all of those things will just help people to get a little bit of perspective on their own lives. And the last thing I would say is to, you know, if they're really sh- struggling, to remind themselves that, you know, they don't have to do it alone. Just like I said, if their car's not working, they'd go to a mechanic if their eyebrows need waxing, they go to a beautician. If they're really struggling to reach out to someone, reach out to a support service, go see a counsellor, see a psychologist, because I think doing those things will be extremely beneficial for their mental well-being. And a reminder that you can have medical appointments and psychology appointments by telehealth. You don't have to leave home. So that's been a really important change this year. Chiria, did you voice the, narrate the audiobook for Happy and Other Ridiculous Aspirations? Mate, I did the first like five pages and they kept making me do it again. So I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to, this is like, what? That was perfect. Come on. <laughs> and so I didn't, I didn't narrate the book. I didn't narrate the book. Um, Madeline Levins narrated it though. And 
I loved her voice. They didn't tell me who was going to be narrating it, but they sent through a test file and I just loved how she spoke because, I don't know, she was almost like sassy in some parts but then a bit sarcastic in others and I really, I, um, I really appreciated that. I thought that was really cool. So she did an awesome job. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it because this book, for anybody who is thinking of buying it, this book is like having a conversation with you. It is so your voice that it is full of F-bombs and bullshits and it is very much real talk. It is practical, real advice. And I, the whole time I've been reading it, I've been reading it with your voice, <laughs> like in my head. Um, so I'm glad to hear that Madeline, is it, has done it justice. Yes, she's done it justice. She's probably done a better job than I could do. And I don't really say that about, about many people. It's It really is fantastic. And I've read a lot of books about happiness and even written a couple myself, and this is right up there. So I really recommend that people go and get this book. It is a gem. So, Tria, thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you for coming back on and sharing your time. Um, it's so good. It's so good to be able to see you. And thank you so much for having me as your first repeat guest. It has been a genuine pleasure to spend three quarters of an hour with you. It's been really nice. And you. Thanks, Tria. Tria's book, Happy and Other Ridiculous Aspirations, is available now in all bookstores, or you can sign up to be part of her letter gang at turiapitt.com. Of course, you can always catch up with me on Facebook and Instagram or at my website, castun.com, and I always appreciate getting your feedback. Hello at castun.com is where you can email me. If you do enjoy the show, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss our new episodes, which will be coming out now every second week. I look forward to having you join me on the next episode of Crappy to Happy. Crappy to Happy is a Podcast One Australia production produced by Dave Zwolenski and with audio by Darcy Thompson. For more great podcasts, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the app.